Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 11.05 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time. That's right, I said Pacific Daylight Time. Why Pacific? Because somehow or another, I found myself moved from Texas to Eastern Washington State. It's bizarre. Under no circumstances ever would I have thought that I would be in a situation where I was not living in the state of Texas. Um, it's, it's bizarre. Okay. So, uh, it, it, and, and also I'm in a brand new room. Uh, it's a larger room than I was in. So forgive the fact that these next shows are going to, it's going to take me a little bit to get the acoustics down. Um, I, I can only do so much so fast because this room is actually really large and it's a shitty, shitty room to record in. It really is. There's not enough furniture in here. It's too large. The ceilings are just a bit too low. So forgive the fact that the acoustics are going to suck for the next few shows, but I cannot wait any longer to do episode 604 of Bitcoin and... Man, I missed so much. I missed so much. I mean, I couldn't cover any of the cool stuff that was going on. I couldn't do anything because my computer was packed up. And no, I don't have a laptop. If I did, it would have made life a hell of a lot easier. But I would have been recording from like 12 different places. And honestly, I kind of needed the break. Uh, It's been a long four years of doing this show and I've got people that are like on my ass asking me when I was going to do another show. And I'm like, when I can, man, when I can. So this is it. This is episode 604 of Bitcoin and. And, you know, now that all the, the stuff, the, the, the crash, the, the weird deleveraging events have basically been covered tooth and nail by every other Bitcoin podcaster, I can move on. And that's exactly what we are going to do. We are going to move on and talk about HODL and NOT, or HODL and NOT, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, Remember, our friend HODL and NOT is just but a few days away from entering into the legal arena with a complete scumbag who is bankrolled by a pedophile that got rich running gambling websites. Yes, Calvin Ayer bankrolling Craig Wright. I know I was promised I wasn't really going to talk about Craig Wright, but this one is important. The Hodel and Knock case is more important than the Peter McCormick case for various reasons. And, and, and the real reason is, is that Hodel and Knott was basically, he's just a pleb. 
he doesn't have you know a gener you know a money cash generator like like Peter McCormick has built with the What Bitcoin Did podcast. He doesn't have that kind of cash. And even Peter was kind of at the end of his rope with, you know, financing that court case. So we're looking at the Hodel and Not thing. And if you want to help Hodel and Not, <clears throat> aka Space Cat, out, go to defendingbtc.com. That's defendingbtc.com and follow at DefendingBTC on Twitter because that's DefendingBTC's website's Twitter handle. Uh, there you can donate either straight up cash or you can donate Bitcoin. And people have been doing so and it makes me feel really, really good about that. I have donated, I wasn't able to donate a whole lot. Some people donated a, donated a whole lot more and we're gonna get into that, but first, if you're not familiar with the Hodel and Ott saga, Bitcoin Magazine's Elsa Waldorf wrote this piece called Craig Wright versus Hodel and Ott, a timeline of the legal battle back on August the 18th, uh, about four or five days ago. So let's get into what occurred, right? And, and what's happening now. We'll go through the timeline so that you can understand the sort of the, the whole gambit of what Hodel and Ott has gone through since, and get this, 2019 is when Hodel and Ott got a hold of me on, it was either Signal or Telegram, and sent me the documentation from Antia LLP, I think is the limited liability partnership, is the, uh, uh, the lawyer firm that Calvin Air constructed. And if you don't believe that Calvin Air didn't construct Antia, you're fooling yourself. Antia's only, the only reason it exists is to represent Craig Wright. Before this whole thing happened, I can't find any evidence of Antia's partnership in part, I can't find any evidence of them existing before all this shit. So I'm pretty sure that Calvin Ayer and probably a couple of other scumbags got together and built a piece of shit legal apparatus so that they could just wreak havoc and they are in fact wreaking havoc right now so let's get into the timeline on september the 12th 2022 a seven-day trial will begin in oslo norway between craig wright and the pseudonymous bitcoiner hodelanot wright's name might be familiar to readers as well as the space cat hodelanot on twitter this article will provide an overview of why this case is important beyond the names involved the team at Defending BTC, a community campaign to fundraise for legal fees, researched the case's timeline to gather a play-by-play -play on the story so far and bring the reader up to speed on the details of the case. Over the years, different people have come forward and claimed that they were Satoshi Nakamoto, the pseudonymous individual or group of individuals that published the Bitcoin white paper in 2008 and launched the network to the world in 2009. Though many have claimed they were Nakamoto, no one has definitively proven such claims to the satisfaction of the Bitcoin community and thus, Nakamoto's identity remains a mystery. Without getting too much into the weeds, there are a few simple actions that would help to prove identity, but no one has actually made those moves yet. More recently, lawsuits have arisen surrounding the claims or the questioning of the claims that certain individuals have made about being the real identities behind Nakamoto. Craig Wright is one of those individuals. 
He has been claiming that he is Nakamoto both in and out of court, having pursued a number of legal proceedings with various European Bitcoiners, most recently Peter McCormick, host of the What Bitcoin Did podcast and owner of the Real Bedford Football Club, has been engaged in legal action with Wright. The court ruling in that case was released on August the 1st, 2022. UK High Court Judge Martin Chamberlain ruled that McCormick's comments caused, quote, serious harm to the reputation of Wright, but also that Wright, quote, advanced a deliberately false case and put forward deliberately false evidence, end quote. As a result, Wright was entitled to recover only nominal charges of one British pound. That's about a buck and a quarter U.S. On the Craig Wright versus Hodelinot situation, however, there are actually two cases happening concurrently. On one front, Hodelinot filed a declaratory statement against Craig Wright in Norway, and on the other, Craig Wright filed a libel suit against Hodelinot in the U.K., what follows is a timeline of the cases. Hmm. March 2019. Not a mega famous pseudonym on Twitter, having recently gone from around 4,000 to about 8,000 followers as a result of the Lightning Trust change. On March 16th and 17th, 2019, Hodel and tweeted a series of tweets about Wright. On March 29th, 2019, Wright responded to Hodel and with a legal notice. Wright filed filed the following complaint against Hodelinot in these public court documents. Wright, along with Calvin Ayer in April 2019, and on TA Legal put a $5,000 in BSV, that's Bitcoin Satoshi's vision, reward out for Hodelinot's identity. CoinGeek, founded by Ayer, published this article promoting the reward. This potential reward drew both Twitter attention and in-person surveillance, according to Hodelinot, this was where the, quote, we are all Hodel and not movement originated. A social campaign that has seen countless Twitter users change their handles and tweet out hashtags in support of SpaceCat. May 2019, per Hodel a private investigator located his place of employment, posed as a police officer on the phone to get personal details and contact information, and then contacted Hodel and saying that he has documents for Hodel and Not to sign. After declining to sign or surrender more information, Hodel and Not filed a declaratory judgment in Norway that he was not liable to pay damages to Wright in response to the Twitter, uh, sorry, Twitter, Twitter legal notice. June 2019, according to Hodel and Not, Wright filed a libel lawsuit against Hodel and Not in the UK. In August of the same year, Wright filed to have Norwegian proceedings dismissed. In September of the same year, Hodelinot filed a UK application to dismiss proceedings due to lack of UK jurisdiction in light of the fact that the same cause of action proceedings were already pending in Norway. Which brings us to December of 2019. A Norwegian judge ruled against Wright's application to dismiss the Norwegian case that Hodelinot had filed. A UK hearing on Hodel Anot's application to dismiss, dismiss the UK case was held, Hodel Anot tweeted. January of 2020, Hodel Anot wins the application to dismiss the UK case and UK proceedings are therefore dismissed. According to Hodel Anot, Wright appealed that ruling on his request for dismissal in Norway. February of 2020, Wright applied for permission to appeal the dismissal ruling in the UK, Hodel and Not tweeted. 
May of 2020, a judge in the UK approved Wright's application to appeal per Hodelinot's Twitter account. June of 2020, the Norwegian Court of Appeals denied Wright his request to have the Norwegian proceedings dismissed per Hodelinot's Twitter. In July of 2020, Hodelinot tweeted that a UK court hearing on Wright's appeal of its dismissal was held, and in August of 2020, Wright appealed to the Norwegian Supreme Court to have the Norwegian proceedings dismissed yet again. September of 2020, the Norwegian Supreme Court dismissed Wright's appeal, ensuring that the Norwegian case will continue. In January of 2021, judges ruled to allow Wright's appeal and UK proceedings to go ahead on the grounds that these proceedings do not involve the same cause of action because Hodelinot initiated the Norwegian case and Hodelinot reported that he is ordered to pay £168,000. That's a lot of money. In October of 2021, Hodelinot's application for a hearing seeking summary UK judgment against Wright is approved to dismiss the case due to no serious harm, as per Hodelinot. In February of 2022, a UK hearing on the application for summary judgment on preliminary issues is held per Hodelinot. May of 2022, a UK judgment ruled that no serious harm was taken against Wright's reputation and the judge dismissed the application. Hodelinot is ordered to pay £112,000 in adverse costs per Hodelinot. Okay, I'm going to pause right there. I believe that when they say adverse costs, he's ordered to pay it because of court cost, not because he caused any damage to Wright, but because this shit costs money, which is why poor people are essentially fucked when it comes to the legal system. Let's continue. In September of 2022, Hodel and Craig Wright will have their seven days in Norwegian court. And that brings us to where we are today. A community-led fundraiser to support for Hodel legal defense has been created. For more information, visit DefendingBTC.com and at DefendingBTC on Twitter. Um, so that's that's where we are. That's sort of the history of this case so far. We have no way of knowing how this is going to drop out. One of the things that I've been most fascinated with is courts across the planet keep taking Craig Wright seriously. And every single time they do, they find out that he has perjured himself. He has committed plagiarism. He has forged documents, both digital and on paper, and yet he there are no repercussions at all. Does this, I mean, does it mean that I can just go into any court in the land? I just, I don't know, maybe just like take a baseball bat to somebody's fucking Lexus and just tear the living shit out of it right in front of the owner and then get arrested and then take the dude that whose car I beat all this shit with a baseball bat to court and lie to the court for seven straight fucking days and have nothing happen to me whatsoever. Because if this is the state of the worldwide legal apparatus, then the whole fucking thing needs to burn the fuck down. I'm just saying. It seems, it seems that we can just do anything we want. And any judge, whether United States, whether federal or state, whether it's a UK magistrate, whether it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. 
we can just lie and plagiarize and commit fraud and, and not serve a single day in jail for contempt of court, pay zero fines whatsoever, and levy all the court costs onto some poor schmo like Hodel and Ott, which he's not a schmo. I'm just saying, just some pleb, right? Really? Because if you want to, if you want to know why so many of us are just saying burn it all down, it's shit like this, and a lot more, a whole lot more. But we're, let's let let's get into what's going on after the end of that article about Hodel and Ott. This one is out of CoinDesk, written by Oliver Knight. Bitcoin website editor Hodelanot receives almost $1 million in BTC as the Craig Wright case looms. $1 million, y'all. A prominent member of the Bitcoin community said in a tweet that he has received a 47 Bitcoin donation ahead of a de defamation court hearing involving in-chain chief scientist Craig Wright. 47 Bitcoin by itself is damn near $1 million US, and he got it all in one lump sum. The pseudonymous Hodelanot, who works as an editor for Bitcoin magazine Citadel 21, has received a total of 52.679 Bitcoin and $30,000 US in donations from 1,891 people. Hodelanot will appear in Norwegian court on September the 12th for a case that began in March 2019. Several members of the crypto community have shown their support for Hodelanot with the social media hashtag, we are all Hodelanot. Now, here it comes. Michael Saylor, the CEO of business intelligence software developer and Bitcoin investor MicroStrategy, posted the hashtag on Twitter on the same day the 47 Bitcoin donation was received. Now, is that proof that Michael Saylor gave Hodelanot 47 Bitcoin as a donation for his uh, court case? We don't know, but honestly, the timing is suspicious. I believe that it is well within Michael Saylor's character to do such a thing, but Michael Saylor hasn't, as far as I know, as of yet, has not owned up to the fact that it was him that did the donation, so we simply don't know who did it. However, what we are sure of is that some one individual or group of individuals that have possession of a shit ton of Bitcoin gave Hodelanot a one-time payment of 47 Bitcoin. So if that doesn't make the cockles of your heart feel a little good, I don't think anything will. Just saying. Now, getting away from Hodelanot, let's talk about some of the further fallout that is still continuing from the massive deleveraging event that was over, you know, happening over the last couple of months. Um, let's talk about Ben Dow. Ben Dow, B-E-N-D-D-A-O. Uh, this is from nftstatistics.eth, otherwise known as Punk9059, and God forbid, you don't want to have anything to do with NFTs right now. They're just have fallen through the floor. But there's still some... There, the fallout, it, it's like a snowstorm. It's still snowing. We are not anywhere close to out of the woods yet. Everybody leveraged themselves to the hilt. Everybody took out loans that they can't afford to pay back. The fallout is continuing. And here's an example of what that looks like. Okay, 
Long thread on the BEND DAO situation. One, they've run out of Ethereum. There is just 12.5 wrapped Ethereum in the contract. Two, what does this mean? People who lent money to others via Bendow to buy NFTs on leverage can't pull their money out. And about 15,000 Ethereum were lent. Three, it also means NFT borrowers must pay 100% interest on their borrowed ETH. Four, the debt against these NFTs is rising quickly now. Let's go back to that first sentence. Number three, it also means NFT borrowers must pay 100% interest on their borrowed ETH. You got hosed. Oh, baby, you got so hosed. And we tried to warn you as a dyed-in-the-wool Bitcoin maximalist, I tried to warn you. And I got laughed at and I got called names and I had fingers pointed at me and I was told I was destroying the entire ecosystem because of my jacked-up Bitcoin maximalism views. But there's a reason I hold those views. This this is exactly why I hold the why I hold Bitcoin maximalist views because I know you're going to get fucked. It's going to happen. It's just a matter. It's not a matter of when or rather if. It's a matter of when, and it's also a matter of how bad is it going to be when it happens. And this is about as bad as it gets. Five. What does that mean for my NFTs? It depends. Right now, the majority of NFTs that have defaulted have no bids. <laughs> <laughs> There's no bids for NFTs. Nobody wants them because I can just right click and save. Sorry, that's not part of the tweet, but whatever. Uh, total number of NFTs for auction with no bid over the total number of NFTs for auction. Uh, for example, for uh, MAYC have bids. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but so there's, th okay, here, here it is. There's 13 out of 17 MAYC NFTs don't have bids. Five out of nine Board Ape Yacht Club uh, don't have bids. Eight out of 11 Clone X don't have bids. Six out of eight Doodles do not have bids. That, that is a, not only is that a high, high, high percentage of shit that nobody wants, it is a low, low, low number of actual bids being placed I mean, like NFTs going up for bidding that I've ever seen. That's like usually there's way more than single digits. So not only is nobody bidding on them, nobody's even taking the time to put them up for bidding. Not like they were. That, that whole mar this whole market is on fire. So I hope every one of my listeners took the time to understand, don't get into NFT. Six, why are there no bids? Well, there's two reasons. <laughs> Bendow requires bids above the debt the borrower owes and above open sea floor. To open a bid, you have to lock up ETH for 48 hours. Debt is sometimes higher than the floor and people don't want the 48 hour risk on floor NFTs. Seven, there are a lot more NFTs about to default and come to auction either due to debt rising with these sky-high interest rates or open sea floor falling. Mm -hmm. Currently, those NFTs are hitting Bendow auctions and not hitting exchanges. Why? Because nobody's bidding on them. 
the Dow is getting stuck with them and they're holding them. Nine, eventually the Dow needs Ethereum from those NFTs to pay lenders who can't withdraw ETH. Hmm, I'm sorry. The Dow needs ETH from those NFTs to pay lenders who can't withdraw ETH. I, I uh, whatever. 10, so we will have to wait and see what the Dow decides. Do they hold these NFTs and hope the floor recovers or do they change their terms? Bidders don't need to cover full debt and can bid at a bigger discount to OS floor, that's OpenSea floor, to make it easier for the Dow to sell NFTs or collect, collect the ETH. I mean, it could go any way. There, there's so, depending on what that Dow does, this is not part of the tweet, but depending on what that Dow decides is how this shit's going to go. And the way they can structure it is, well, they can structure it any way they want, which is why you should never get into NFTs. Lastly, do they find a market maker who buys them at a sharp discount and sells them over time? As long as they sit on the NFTs with no bids, the market doesn't feel it directly. We'll wait and see. Hopefully the market can absorb whatever comes and work through it. No, it's not going to absorb whatever comes and work through it. NFTs were stupid to begin with. They're stupid now and they're going to be stupid in the future until there's an actual use case for them. People were bidding on an NFT of a rock for $1 million USD three months ago, four months ago, five months ago. And we kept telling them there's no value here. There's none. It doesn't exist. And nobody would listen. And they all just got burned at the stake like a witch. Uh, it just, it amazes me just how bad this shit is. But we have other shit coins. We have other shit coins, except they, re, they, they exist in meat space. And one of them is real estate. Now, that's not to say that I don't like real estate. It's just, well, let's talk about the financialization of real estate being the problem that Bitcoin is the solution for. This is out of Jeremy from Bitcoin Magazine. And he writes the following. Over the last few years, a lot of fuss have been made around so-called crypto colonizers moving to the developing world and taking advantage of affordable housing and other amenities provided by disadvantaged locals. The Washington Post, Business Insider, and even the New York Times reported from Puerto Rico throwing around terms like gentrification and associating this new class of wealthy globetrotting entrepreneurs with words like utopian, idealist, and the slimmer evangelist. Now, I'm not here to defend any particular individual or how they made their money or even what they plan to do with it. God dang it, stop inserting ads right in the middle of my read. Instead, I want to drill into one very specific foundation for these types of accusations, that the rise in prices is due to demand. Superficially, that's partly true. As anyone who has taken an introduction to economics course can tell you, prices are set by the law of supply and demand. Each of these, in turn, can be influenced by a variety of factors. For the purposes of this article, I want to focus completely on real estate. Real estate has a supply problem. They aren't making any more land, and all of it is already spoken for. Outside of a few eccentric efforts to raise islands from the sea, if you want a place to live, you're going to have to buy it or rent it from somebody. The seller is going to decide how much they are willing to accept for it based on a variety of factors. Primarily, its location, but also its use and the quality of its improvements. You can break this down even further and consider the view, the legal jurisdiction, the applicable tax regime, 
the soil quality of the land, its ease of access, perhaps whether it contains rare or useful minerals and other natural resources, and finally, whether there may be a conservation or historical element to its valuation. On the demand side of the equation, there are just as many nuances. A buyer will decide how much they are willing to pay by considering all of the above, plus one additional truth. You gotta live somewhere. Not choosing a place isn't a realistic strategy unless the ambience of a highway overpass or the unique aroma of the dry patch behind the dumpster in the alley downtown really speaks to you. There is one additional factor that weighs heavily on the minds of both buyer and seller that has caused real estate prices to rise more than any other, financialization. As a thought experiment, imagine what the cost of a house would be if its value were completely dependent on its utility as a house. In other words, how much would you be willing to pay to keep the wet rain from dripping on your head when you sleep or having a safe place to raise a family? How much do the materials of its construction contribute to its price? Size is important as well as aesthetics and so on, but surely you'll agree that the price requested for most homes greatly exceeds its utility value solely as a house. The remainder of its price has more to do with its utility as a financial asset. In fact, that might be the primary driver of price in most real estate markets today. So how do we get here? Our current global economy is designed around a simple idea. By slowing, eroding the value of money through inflation, you stimulate investment and growth. Sounds easy, right? The problem is that most people aren't savvy enough to invest in a complex marketplace, so investing in real estate becomes a proxy for a long-term store of wealth. This kind of system is inherently unstable given the fate of every fiat currency that has ever been tried. Ultimately, every issuer of currency succumbs to the desire to print ever-expanding amounts, leading to hyperinflation. Asset prices rise in accordance with the supply of money and everything ends up being too expensive to buy toward the end of the cycle. If it weren't obvious, we're at the end of the cycle. Prices of everything are setting records and it is human nature to want to assign the blame for the fact that home ownership, which once seemed like a reachable goal, is now a distant fantasy. If you look around and the only folks that seem to be able to afford a home you wish you had are the nouveau riche, then they can seem convenient to blame even more so if they are flagrantly terrible people. But, and this is the important part, they aren't to blame for the rising prices. Blaming them for the unaffordability in the market is like blaming a baby for its pregnancy. Preg uh, sorry, scammers aren't the disease. They are the symptom. So now that you're thoroughly depressed, you may be asking, what can we do about it? The answer is simple. Although to the disadvantaged locals, it may seem counterintuitive. The answer is to adopt Bitcoin as quickly as you can. Switch yourself, your family, your neighborhood, and your country over to a Bitcoin standard without delay. Only by taking the ability to print money out of the hands of the ruling class can we put an end to the hyperinflationary death spiral we are now experiencing. If you are in a developing country, one of the best ways you can get started with this is to reach out to that Bitcoin immigrant you might have been quick to blame. Realize that if they spend Bitcoin on a house in your community, for example, that's a great way to get Bitcoin flowing through the local economy, and that's what adoption looks like. There is no shortcut here, and the transition will be bumpy. But unless we switch to a deflationary currency that doesn't create the incentive to financialize assets like real estate, 
the situation will get worse. All right, so that's the end of the article, and it brings up some really good points, but the best point that it made was, I'm trying to find it, uh, hold on for a sec. Uh-huh. All right, well, I can't really find the, the actual sentence. I should have highlighted it, uh, but I didn't. Because why? Because I'm not used to doing the damn show. See, I'm already at 32 minutes. I got like one more story to read before I even get into the commodities and, and, and Bitcoin uh, prices and stuff like that. So I am definitely off my game. But before I do that, I've got to tell you about the the, the sentence that I read was basically saying, in the ever-expanding and ever-more-complicated investment landscape of the world economy, all right, that most people just default to something easy, like buying real estate. Okay, that's true. And, and as they buy real estate to hold their wealth, and that increases prices. But remember BlackRock? BlackRock is one of the largest holders of single family homes that there is, that there has ever been. Now, what does that tell you? Is it possible that even BlackRock is like looking at the investment landscape of the world and going, and they understand it. They're sophisticated. They've got Nobel laureate economist, or at least I suppose, that's like, you know, telling them that ah, this, this is the investment landscape. And even BlackRock is saying, fuck it, let's buy houses. If that should, that should raise the hackles on the back of your neck pretty severely. When somebody as sophisticated as BlackRock, with all the assets under management that they have, is looking at the investment landscape and they're saying, fuck it, real estate. Wow. This shit is coming to an end and it's going to be spectacular. The only thing that I hope is that I can get out of my house that I own in Canyon, Texas before it all happens and it may not. I may not get out in time. I got, there's two things. I got a, I got an insurance claim on some damage that was done to a bathroom by a leak I didn't see. So the whole subfloor has to get ripped out. Allstate has been working on that claim for three weeks. They said they're going to, they're going to cover it, but it just keeps getting delayed and delayed and delayed. And I, I, I wrote him and I said, look, I go, if this shit doesn't get fixed, I'm going to miss out because I can't ethically me both me and my realtor have just you know decided that that we agree that it's unethical to put the house on the market without that leak and that bathroom being completely fixed sure i could tell the prospective buyers that this is going to happen but honestly i got a problem with that and i'm just not going to go to bed i'm just not going to try to go to sleep thinking that that i lied to somebody about a situation in my house I, I don't know. It's just, it's bizarre. Anyway, so the, my whole point about saying that is that I feel it. I feel the end coming so close that I'm really worried that I might get underwater on my house if this shit takes too long. Right now, I would make a pretty decent profit. Even if I get out not owing shit, I'd actually be happy. I would be happier if I made a profit, but as long as I don't owe anything on the house and can dump it, and get rid of it because I don't live I don't live in Canyon, Texas anymore. I, yeah, then I'd be happy. But I'm really concerned. I see the writing on the wall. It's right there in plain sight. And yet 
I have to wait. And when, when I start feeling this way, BlackRock start probably starting to feel this way. And a lot of people that put their wealth in their house so that they could have it as a store of value as well as keeping the rain off, they're probably starting to feel it too. And if all this shit collapses together, 2008 is going to look like training wheels on the real bike. Let's run the numbers. CNBC.com, futures and commodities, OPEC, defending $90 a barrel. We got West Texas Intermediate at $90.67. Brent North Sea is at $96.56. Both are experiencing eh, like 0.11 and 0.17 uh, percentage downturns, uh, respectively. Natural gas, however, at $9.75 after a 4.5% bump to the upside. Uh, gasoline down to $2.88 a gallon after a four and a quarter percentage point slide to the downside. Gold down 0.76 to $1,750. Bucks. Silver down just over a point. Platinum down two and a quarter points. Copper is down 0.4. Palladium is down, wow, 6.75%. Wonder what happened. Uh, agricultural futures, wheat up 2%. Soybeans up 2%. Corn up 0.7%. Coffee, however, taking the crown 3.4% to the upside. We got Dow futures down almost two points. S&P futures, well, actually, they're not futures. At this point in the day, they are live. Dow down 1.95%. S&P down 2.19%. NASDAQ is down 2.69%. And the S&P mini is down over 2%. Wow. And now we got the Bitcoin price at $21,165.23. We have had 235,000 transactions performed in the last 24 hours. That's 9,800 transactions every hour on the hour with 1.6 million BTC changing hands in that period. That's 67,000 BTC every hour on the hour with an average transaction value of 6.88 BTC a median transaction value of 0.019 BTC or about 406 bucks. Block times are low, nine minutes, 25 seconds. Uh, we have 0.06 BTC taken in fees on a per block basis, 9.3 BTC taken in fees overall the last 24 hours. And after a 1.97% dip in hash rate, we are at 203.5 exahashes per second. Uh, let's see. Oh, probably should have done Doge, but fuck it. I hate Dogcoin. Used to be fun, but Elon made it completely unfun. Uh, there are 5,176 transactions waiting on five blocks to clear. Uh, <clears throat> we have a market capitalization of 4.1, or not 4.1, I'm sorry, guys, $401.6 billion. And that is a mere 3.51% of gold's market cap. We can get 12.1 ounces of shiny metal rocks with our one Bitcoin, of which there are 19,128,679.67 of, and let's see, 4,587 of those BTC are in the Lightning Network. Guys, when I ended 
this summer, uh, when I stopped doing the show for a while this summer, we were at just over 4,000. We were at just over 4,000 Bitcoin in the Lightning Network. There are 4,587 just two and a half months later. That's a lot of Bitcoin in Lightning. That capacity value is 96.2 million USD being run over 17,192 nodes sporting 85,402 payment channels. Now, 71.1% of all that is being run over 12,277 Tor nodes. So we're still rocking on when it comes to a lightning network. That's gonna do it for vitals. Welcome to part two of the news that you can use and bitcoinnews.com. First up on the list with this one by, oh, come on, give me a written by, uh, written by Bitcoin News. So not, not giving the author any credit, whatever. Um, Bitcoin is the only way out for content creators. Content creators are in a tough spot right now. Today's creator economy is completely reliant on an outdated, unfree, and centralized payment network, and the noose is always tightening. But there is an alternative, and it is a really good one. That alternative is Bitcoin, and it might just be the only way out for digital content creators. Digital content creation is something very special. Since there is no cash on the internet, our society was required to create a global system for payments on the internet over the past few decades. Some of you might think that the current system works just fine. I can simply go online, create an account with Patreon, YouTube, or even OnlyFans and start monetizing my passion. And all of that with a few simple clicks, right? Unfortunately, this is not true for most people. Some of you may just not just feel it yet, probably because you were born in a country with financial privileges, such as, you know, having access to bank accounts. You may also be lucky enough to have your passion and content aligned with the views and morals of global payment processors. If you are not born in such a country or want to monetize content that might be incompatible with what they think is right, you're going to run into problems really fast. You don't even have to travel far to witness this type of exclusion. A great example is the German Bitcoin-only community Einduendwanzig. There's no way I pronounced that right. Sorry, guys. Einduendwanzig, which is German for 21, and again, complete mispronunciation, started as a Bitcoin-only podcast, but quickly became much more than that. It's, it's, it became a Bitcoin community, a collective, and it is now a movement. They have a community-driven YouTube channel from where, or where people from the community upload videos for the community. The channel currently has about 6,000 subscribers, and its videos are viewed about 40,000 times every month. Despite all of this, it is still unable to monetize its YouTube channel via YouTube's monetization program simply because... As a Bitcoin-only association, they don't have access to a fiat bank account. Why would they? You can see that exclusion from the current system is not only a problem for people living in less privileged countries, but it's happening right in your neighborhood too. If you start researching, you will find many of these cases, often involving more controversial content, and Visa and MasterCard as well. One that actually made the media last year was OnlyFans' plan to ban adult content from their platform. 
Instead of building a home for all creators to be free and empowering them, they bowed to the processors, to the rules of monetization. And who can blame them? If banks and processors would drop them, OnlyFans probably would need to shut down within a year. In the end, OnlyFans withdrew its plans. However, many creators believe that this is only a temporary reprieve, which puts all users of the platform in to fear and uncertainty. Banks, credit card companies, and processors have established themselves as self-proclaimed gatekeepers of digital monetization. They rule the internet with an absolute monopoly and market share and power. Platforms, creators, and users have either to submit or fear exclusion, which to them often means going busts. To sum up the whole topic, Today's internet is built on top of a centralized payment system that arbitrarily can and will exclude users and creators that do not align with its beliefs. And there is no escape. Well, or is there? With Bitcoin, things change. Instead of relying on single entities and a permissioned gated network, Bitcoin is decentralized and open. Its ledger is not held and maintained by a company, but instead distributed across thousands of machines worldwide. Those machines are run by many different Bitcoin companies as well as users and enthusiasts. Thanks to consensus mechanisms and cryptography, it cannot be altered. Additionally, the network's global distribution, as well as Bitcoin's pseudonymity, ensures that no one can be excluded or censored. Thanks to Bitcoin content creators, ah, sorry, thanks to Bitcoin, content creators have an alternative to the centralized payment rails provided by the self-proclaimed monarchs of the internet. This is not only an alternative, but even a better solution. Thanks to the Lightning Network, Bitcoin offers faster and cheaper payments, as well as increased privacy. Most importantly, Bitcoin does not exclude or judge. It does not decide whether the content is good and allowed or bad and banned. Thanks to Bitcoin, that decision can again be made by the consumers, the creators, and the platforms. Don't get me wrong, even with monetization through Bitcoin, there might be legal boundaries, but there is no moral censorship involved. Eindundwanzig understood this, and they made themselves a little bit more independent by including lightning addresses in every video. That way, the community can still support the creators without relying on YouTube's native and permissioned monetization. That's an important reason why Starbacker is built on Bitcoin. This is the only way we are able to provide a platform for everyone free of moral censorship, no matter where you come from, no matter if you have a bank account or credit card, Bitcoin empowers its creators. All right. Yeah, I'm glad that they didn't, you know, really go through and, and harp on, you know, the, their release of the platform and centered more on why Bitcoin is important to content creators. But what I was hoping for in this article, although it's still kind of important for us to every once in a while go back and, and, Re, you know, find ourselves looking at Bitcoin as a payment solution uh, against this kind of garbage again and again and again. I might remind you that you can support this podcast on the Fountain app through Podcasting 2.0. Podcasting 2.0 leverages the Lightning Network and you can stream me sats. You can boost my, my show. Like you, like, you can send me a message. I have been out of the loop for so long that I, I'm trying to get my my fountain thing back. I mean, I've got it up and running, but since I haven't put up any shows lately, I'm not getting any boostograms. But if you send me a boostogram, I'll read it on air. I, uh, I, I will, I promise. I'll read it on air. I don't have any boostograms 
like from the last couple of months, so I can't get to them. But if you, you know, throw, I don't know, throw 50 sats at me, say something and see if I'll read it on air. Don't, don't, please don't do to me what people do to Marty. I don't want to say ape coin is good 50,000 times for 50 sats. That's not going to happen. Say something meaningful, right? Say something or announce your baby's birth or announce your wedding or I don't know, whatever, but just don't make me say board ape yacht club is cool because it's not and it's going to get you in trouble. Now, speaking of trouble, we got a zero day hack on Bitcoin ATMs. This is also from bitcoinnews.com written by Leon Sigmund. Um, and the title is Zero Day Hack Exploits General Bytes Bitcoin ATMs Operators Shut Down the Machines. A zero day vulnerability was exploited on Thursday leading to a global shutdown of ATM networks and losses of at least 10 Bitcoin. The second largest Bitcoin ATM manufacturer, General Bytes, confirmed the exploit of a server vulnerability that led to downtime and theft of Bitcoin on some of their machines. Users on Twitter reported ATMs were unavailable for hours. This is on the largest, one of the, sorry, this is one of the largest Bitcoin ATM hacks known to date, both in terms of stolen funds and overall scope. Operators were advised to halt operation immediately and wait for a security patch to be pushed out to fix the issue on Thursday evening, 7.35 p.m. local time. According to sources close to the bitcoinnews.com, at least 10 BTC were stolen from the attackers. General Bytes, however, told Bitcoin News that only $15,000 in losses were reported by operators so far. The attack exploited a vulnerability which existed and stayed unnoticed. The attackers were able to identify the ports and IP addresses of the ATM cloud server and change admin users' credential. Oh my God. With this trick, that ain't a trick, dude. That's a solid hack, bro. With this trick, they were able to alter key information such as funding addresses ATM users use to deposit Bitcoin if they sell Bitcoin for cash at the ATM. Quote, pretty bad. Canceled all meetings and going out and focusing, focusing on bringing it back online. In all servers, I had new terminals created to make fake buys and drain the wallets and the invalid payment addresses and cell settings and CAS were redirecting to the attacker's addresses. Also, there were new admin rights users created. Even in the cloud server that GB runs, they couldn't stop it from making all the changes, so they disabled the machines and now they are locked. I didn't even know they, GB, at General Bytes, uh, could do that. So. Uh, there's no reason to read the rest of it. So just in summary, zero day hack, the hackers got in, identified the IP addresses of the server that was basically feeding information and doing admin shit for all the ATMs on, on at least general bytes machines, changed the user access so that then they could insert their own Bitcoin wallet address as the depositing address for people going up to those machines and selling their Bitcoin for cash, which means I think that that would mean that the guys that deposited Bitcoin and sold it at the ATM were dispensed cash, but the Bitcoin never made it to the wallet that it was supposed to go to. It was instead diverted to a hacker's wallet. All of this is going to continue to happen. All of this has happened before, and all of this is going to happen again. And it happened on Thursday. And here's 
Here's where the FUD is going to come in. See, Bitcoin was hacked. No, Bitcoin was not hacked. The system, a layer of systems that was overlaid on top of the Bitcoin network that leveraged the Bitcoin network to do whatever it is that the, this system needed it to do, that was hacked, not Bitcoin, not at the protocol level. But I guarantee you, wait for the FUD because it's coming. Bitcoin got hacked, guarantee it. Uh, let's see, what else do we got here? Oh, uh, Cointelegraph, Helen Parts. Stablecoin issuers hold more U.S. debt than Berkshire Hathaway. Let that sink in. Now, before I begin this one, note, I'm not a stablecoin hater. I don't use them. I don't need to. I don't trade. In my opinion, stablecoins are only there for people that are trying to sell the top and buy the bottom. I, I don't see any other useful need for it. Except there are, I am reading cases where there are people in third world countries that are actually using it as money, but hey, that floats your boat, fine. I don't give a shit at this point, man. I got better fish to fry. But stable coins, in my opinion, do represent something that could quite possibly be a danger. Will it destroy Bitcoin? No, it's not going to destroy Bitcoin, but like everything else that doesn't destroy Bitcoin, what it does do is delay the inevitable. And that actually may be nature doing what nature does to make sure that new systems, like maybe a new mutation that comes into, I don't know, like a breed of birds, somehow or another doesn't completely overpower the existing population of those same birds and kind of slows it down so that there's some kind of equilibrium. I don't know. But I see the same thing happening in Bitcoin, that if, if none of these things were happening, if, if, if the deleveraging event that occurred over the last two months didn't happen, if Mt. Gox didn't get hacked, if all of, of, of the shit that we've seen never happened, where would Bitcoin be at right now? And if you're excited at the notion, you may want to understand that where Bitcoin might be at right now is in a situation where it's completely destroyed the global economic system. And that maybe nature, unbeknownst to any of us at Bitcoin, or not at Bitcoin, any of us in Bitcoin, anybody in the ecosystem, anybody that hates Bitcoin and they're in their own ecosystem, and all of us together somehow or another have no fucking control over what nature does and nature's just going, look, man, I got this. I, I'm going to drive the car. You guys have no say about what happens and that nature somehow or another in the background is operating in a way that presumes that the death and complete collapse of a global economic system within 13 years is probably not a good thing. Just my two cents on that. Now, Helen Parts' piece. Stablecoin issuers like Tether and Circle have accumulated a significant share in the United States Treasury market outperforming major traditional finance players. Various stablecoin providers collectively held 80 billion with a B dollars worth of short-term U.S. government debt as of May of 2022, according to a study by the investment bank J.P. Morgan, which was released August the 16th. Tether, Circle, and other stablecoin firms accounted for 2% of the total market for U.S. Treasury bills holding a larger share of T-bills than totally owned by Warren Buffett's investment giant Berkshire Hathaway. Stablecoin issuers 
have also outperformed offshore money market funds and prime market funds in terms of their treasury bill investment proportion according to the data. Considered to be low-risk assets, treasury bills are debt instruments that are commonly used by companies as a cash equivalent on corporate balance sheets. Tether and Circle, issuers of the world's largest asset-backed stablecoins, Tether and USD Coin, or USDC, have pledged to buy U.S. Treasury bills while cutting reliance on commercial paper earlier this year. The move came amid uncertainty surrounding algorithmic stablecoins sparked by the Terra USD losing its dollar peg in May of 2022. In contrast to algorithmic stablecoins, which rely on algorithms and smart contracts to support their U.S. dollar backing, asset-backed stablecoins like USDT and USDC are designed to guarantee the one-to-one peg by holding cash and common cash equivalents. At the time of writing, USDT's market capitalization amounts to $67.6 billion, while USDC's market value is $52.4 billion, according to data from CoinGecko. As previously reported, USDC has seen notable growth in market cap, while Tether's market dominance has been dropping since May. Quote, market confidence in Tether as a stablecoin has been gradually eroding, with the events over the past few months accelerating that dynamic, J.P. Morgan said. According to the bank, one of the primary drivers behind the shift has been the superior transparency and asset quality of USDC's reserve assets. Yeah, like I trust Coindesk's fucking stablecoin to be anything other than what Brian Armstrong says it is. Again, I don't have a dog in this hunt, really. I mean, to say I'm more for Tether than I am for USDC is is a fool's game, so I won't do it. But anything out of Coin, not Coin, uh, what did I say? Uh, Coinbase, not Coindesk. Coinbase, Brian Armstrong, Coinbase. I, I just, I don't trust it. I don't trust anything Brian Armstrong looks at, touches, tastes, feels, smells. I don't trust him as far as I could throw him. I just don't trust it. But we've got better fish to fry. Uh, Australia unveils plans for crypto regulations, quote, unlike anywhere else in the world, end quote. Sander Lutz for Decrypt.co. Australia's crypto regulators are attempting to go where no government has ever gone before. Well, that's according to them, at least. In a statement on Monday, the Australian Treasury announced a multi-step plan to establish a crypto regulatory framework that it claims will be more thorough and better informed than those previously established anywhere else in the world. Key to the government's approach will be a form of market research that it's called, it's calling, get this, guys, Token mapping, market research that the government is calling token mapping. Token mapping will allow officials to view and evaluate nuanced trends in Australian crypto markets to best identify how crypto assets and related services should be regulated. Today's statement from Jim Chalmers, Australia's treasurer under Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, emphasized the importance of comprehensively understanding crypto markets before drafting regulations. Quote, the previous government dabbled in crypto asset regulation, but prematurely jumped straight to options without first understanding what was being regulated, said Chalmers. Quote, the Albanese government is taking a more serious approach to work out what is in the ecosystem and what risks need to be looked at first. Okay, I'm going to pause right there to 
highlight the fact that this is your clue that the Australian government doesn't know what the hell they're doing. Because one of the first things, if you've been in this game any time at all, you realize that what needs to be looked at first today is not what needs to be looked at first tomorrow. Why? Because this landscape changes that quickly. It changes so quickly that what you thought you had a handle on, what you, 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 you got 15 people to sit in chairs around a table and dub them a blue ribbon council or something like that to figure out some X and then four days later, some Y pops up that is even more potentially disastrous. The Australian government doesn't know what they're doing. And in my opinion, this entire thing that they're talking about is just paying lip service to the fact that they need to be doing, quote unquote, something about crypto. The token mapping thing, however, is, is an interesting, is an interesting uh, nomenclature. Maybe they'll talk more about it here. In December 2021, Chalmers' predecessor, Treasurer Josh, Josh Frydenberg, pledged to take crypto out of the shadows by creating a comprehensive crypto regulatory framework. In May, however, Frydenberg and the rest of Prime Minister Scott Morrison's government were ousted in a federal election. The Albanese government now claims its approach to crypto will be more nuanced, cautious, and research heavy than the previous administration, but its approach may be less novel than it's letting on. Last December, Frydenberg's Treasury Ministry released a report on transforming Australia's payment system that committed to completing a similar token mapping exercise by the end of 2022. The findings collected from that project in combination with other reports and consultations were meant to inform a crypto regulatory framework to be established the following year. According to today's statement, the Albanese government's token mapping project will identify notable gaps in the regulatory framework, progress work on a licensing framework, review innovative organizational structures, look at custody obligations for third-party custodians of crypto assets, and provide additional consumer safeguards. According to the Treasury Ministry, a public consultation paper further fleshing out the token mapping process will be released soon, TM. A timeline for when the Albanese government plans to turn its findings from that exercise into legislation, however, remains unclear. When asked to further clarify, or sorry, when asked for further clarity in this regard, the Treasury did not immediately respond for comment. Yeah, I can't imagine why. So there you go. That's the news. That's going to do it for the morning roundup. I should have queued up a dad joke, but I don't have one. Like I said, I'm I'm out of practice. Very, very much out of practice. It's really weird that even after you do something for three or four years, if you don't do it for two straight, two and a half straight months, you're gonna get rusty. And I am as rusty as can be. And I, I hope the, the echo chamber that I'm sitting in, and I don't mean Twitter, I mean the actual room physically that I'm inhabiting right now. Uh, isn't going to be too hard to squelch down in terms of slapback echoes and whatnot like that. The acoustics and myself will improve. Just give me a little bit of time and I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.